not sure what, where it is. Barbara Warnke is a friend of ours and is in the Angelus Group here at oh, church. That's right. And her son, Patrick, is in the hospital. He couldn't swallow and he has pneumonia and they can't find the right antibiotic for him. They've given him five and none of them are working. Uh, yeah, so they're now doing a culture to try to find out what they can do to help him. They have a new notes wrong then, do they? Maybe. No, they don't. Well, well I mean, besides the one on the lymphogram, Williams, Bob, and Spargo. How old is he? He's got some kind of pneumonia. He's in his late 20s. Oh, wow. 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 Wait, the ground just trembled. <laughs> Hi, Mark. His name is Patrick, anyway. Yeah, Patrick. his name is Patrick. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself always, particularly in the Mass this morning, your words to us. Um, and right now, um, for this approaching Lent, I ask for a special blessing on all of us um, as we prepare ourselves to offer ourselves to be with you more fully, to take seriously the discipline um, um, you ask us to undertake, to repent, to give up things, to learn to renounce the world, to put it away, so that we can um, love more the way you do and the way you've asked us to do. Strengthen our efforts this Lent to put ourselves away, to deny ourselves, particularly where it's hard. Um, ask a special blessing on Marcy, I'm sorry. Patrick. Patrick, um, this young man. Um, Help the doc doctors discover what's wrong, but meanwhile, um, heal him, help him recover. Um, and give him a quiet heart um, as much as is possible. Um, we ask a blessing on Jesse. Um, continue to watch over him. Um, as long as this thing goes on, um, that it, um, each day draw him closer to you and strengthen him in his faith. Um, I offer special prayers too for um, Madison and Tracy and the work that they do. Um, watch over that young woman, that girl. Um, protect her. Help her to find the help that she needs um, and strengthen um, Tracy and her efforts to help. Um, watch over Gracie um, and Jimmy. Forgive them their sins. Um, if there is a time um, ahead of them in purgatory, let our prayers move them along. Help them to see what they didn't see here. Let any despair um, be wiped away um, so that all they do, they will do in hope and gladly. Um, help them um, to come to you one day um, and know the joy of being in your presence. Let that be so for all of us, too. I offer thanksgiving, too, for all the efforts that Christopher and Kayla are making, um, all the signs of hope the two of them are um, opening to each other again. Strengthen both of them in a spirit of humility. Um, help them to grow in your love. 
let it be so for all of us. And always help us to take what we learn here out into the world and actually live it. Don't let it stay in our heads, let it carry to our hearts um, so that it will inform all that we do with each other and those around you, particularly where people don't know you. Give us the courage to do that. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. See, I don't think there's any new practical stuff. Um, the books have been ordered to We Have Faces, and I talked with Marcy, and they should be in. They're, they're supposed to come in today or tomorrow, and they'll go to the office, so there's no rush. We've got several more weeks on the mansion, or I think two or three more weeks before we start to We Have Faces. Um, but... But just so you know, if, if you're here at church, you can stop by the office and check and see if they're in. Um, hold off paying so that you can give Suzanne, I don't know what the books are going to cost. I'm assuming somewhere between 12 and 15, but I'm not sure. They may be less, but those books should um, be coming in shortly. Um, okay, let's do, let's get back to Elliot. I feel like we've abandoned him and want to pick him up again. Um, somebody, who, we have nuts and cookies, and now, who, is this, is this? I don't know what he's saying. Oh, sure. Sure. It's a lemon. You got a lemon taste, Mercy. Oh, we have that. <laughs> and that, and the. Oh, well, that's okay. We, have that. we know how lemon. We have that one. I don't have that. Yeah, yes, you do. Come on. Okay. Go ahead. Help yourself. Come on. We're just. Oh wait. Is that your? It tastes like there's a lemon flavor in it. There's lemon, and my friend Maria, who's the person right here, she made this mm. Good, very good. Are all the napkins gone? Before we start dry sausages, let me. If, if everybody can turn to the poem for a second. Remember that 
each one of the poems takes one of the four elements as its governing theme. I don't think that's always clear, and, and I, I think some critics push that a little bit. It's, it's a little bit hard for me still to determine what the major element is for Burnt Norton, but I think it's clear in the other three quartets. But there's not a question in Dry South Vages that it's the sea, water. And um, I want to just um, point out here Remember, it begins, I'm trying to wait for um, Tracy, but it, it begins, I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god. Remember, the focus is the river, but as in all the quartets, Eliot um, focuses on a theme and its invisible presence um, everywhere in reality where very, very often we don't see it. So in the beginning of this, he says, the river is within us, the sea is all about us, the sea is the land's edge also, the granite. It hints of earlier another creation. Then he points out the presence of water in a number of things where ordinarily we don't think of its being there. I think it lines up with a still point in this way. Water, like the other things, earth, air, fire, we take for granted when it's all about us. It's in our, it's in our bodies, it's all around us, it's in the air. So the fact that we don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. It is. So it's a reminder that there are these things in nature that are constant. They're there. Um, it's like a living principle. So he says in the, in the middle of that first section, the salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees. There it is. How many of us see fir trees and see fog? How many of us look at a rose and see the salt from the air, the water? The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices often heard together, and then he goes on uh, to um, point out those voices in various aspects of reality. Is everybody with me? It's, so in that sense, it's like the still point, okay? Even though we don't see it, it's always there. And one of the things that he's been doing in the four quartets is reminding us that this still point, this intersection between eternity and time, the timeless in our world is always here. The challenge to us, the question for us is, do we see it? Do we try to live with it? Are we too much before and after, right? Living in wounds of the past or um, living too much for what we expect in the future? Are we living in the here and now, immediately, in the fullness of the present? Because it's there that time and the timeless intersect. That where is that's where we meet Christ. So that's a constant theme. Now, keeping that in mind, watch this. Take a look at the second section now. In the second section, Eliot, the second section is divided into two parts. The first part consists of six sestets. Sestets means six, right? So there's six line. Um, um, stanzas, okay? But now look at this, and I want you to just hear this as I read it, because you likely would miss it if, if it weren't pointed out. Where's there an end of it, the soundless wailing? What's the um, first line of the second, says step? There is no end but addition, the trailing. So what you see is that the 
n rhyme of each line lines up with the corresponding line in the next step. Okay. I want you to hold on to that because the question I want to ask when this is done, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to take time with the poems, but I want to take a minute with this one. Why does Eliot do that? And and to help with that, remember this: couplets have n rhymes every every match pair. So as soon as an, a line ends, you hear a rhyme, and then as soon as the following line ends, you hear another rhyme. So the couplet picks up rhymes all the time. You hear them, you can't miss them. So the, the rhyming couplets call attention to themselves. You could read these sestets and almost not be aware that the parallel lines rhyme, they match up. So my question is, why does Eliot do this? He could have written a sestet, A, B, A, B, C, C, or A, B, A, B, A, B. I mean, he could have done it a lot of different ways. Is everybody clear? Could have done it any of those ways, but he doesn't. There's no rhymes in each sestet, but every line in the first sestet matches up with the corresponding line in the next one and the next one. So why did he do that? Okay, now let me read it. Is everybody together? Okay. <clears throat> Two. Where is there an end of it? The soundless wailing. The silent withering of autumn flowers dropping their petals and remaining motionless. Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage? The prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer of the calamitous annunciation. There is no end but addition, the trailing consequences of further days and hours, while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in is the most reliable, and therefore the fittest for renunciation. There's the final addition, the failing pride or resentment of failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell for the last annunciation. Where's the end of them, the fisherman sailing into the wind's tail where the fog cowers? We cannot think of a time that is oceanless or of an ocean not littered with wastage, or of a future that is not liable, like the past, to have no destination. We have to think of them as forever bailing, setting, and hauling, while the north east lowers over shallow banks, unchanging and erosionless, or drawing their money, drying sails, and dockage. Not as making a trip that will be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. There is no end to it, the voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones prayer to death, it's God, only the hardly, barely, prayable prayer of the one annunciation. It seems, as one becomes older, that the past has another pattern and ceases to be mere sequence or even development. The latter a partial fallacy, courage, a superficial notions of evolution, which becomes, in the popular mind, a means of disowning the past. The moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security, or affection, 
or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination, we had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form, beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said it before, that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations, not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable. The backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror. Now we come to discover that the moments of agony, whether or not due to misunderstanding, having hoped for the wrong things or dreaded the wrong things, is not in question, are likewise permanent, with such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others, nearly experienced, involving ourselves than in our own. For our own past is covered by the currents of action, but the torment of others remains an experience unqualified, unworn, by subsequent attrition. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, like the river with its cargo of dead negroes, cows, and chicken coops, the bitter apple and the bite in the apple. And the ragged rock in the restless waters, waves wash over it, fog conceals it. In a halcyon day, it is merely a, mon a monument in navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by, but in the somber season or a sudden fury is what it always was. Okay, just, just a moment to go back to my question. He's describing um, the way things come to be and pass. Um, um, Things are in flux, but they pass away, just like the sea. So death is always with us. There is no end of it. The voiceless wailing agony is a part of our experience. We can't escape it. It's here today. It will be here tomorrow. It will be the day after. Suffering is a part of our human condition. Not till after death will we ever get free of it. So he says, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the uh, movement of pain that is painless and motionless. Only the hardly barely prayable prayer of the one annunciation. He keeps talking, the clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Of the one annunciation, it's the coming, uh, it will be the, um, the bearing of Christ, bringing Christ into the world. That's the one thing that will answer this ceaseless agony. Um, we had the experience, now just hold on for a moment. We had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. So many of us think we have answers. I mean, I, I know I can speak for myself, and I'm assuming for most of us, we think we know these things and get a grasp on them, and then we look back in retrospect and think, that was only a part of it. There was so much I missed. Um, it should sober us up. That's very Socratic. Remember, that's the Socratic um, proposition. It's the program that we don't know what we think we do. There's so much more to know. Um, yep. So we have a correction to our pride if we would only admit that. So often we go through life you know, acting like we've got answers to everything. Here he says, the only answer is this prayer. The one, 
only the hardly barely prayer of the one annunciation clamor of the bell of the last annunciation prayer at the calamitous annunciation in the face of all this wreckage of things dying of passing away our life is in decay in hamlet if you remember hamlet the minute we're born we're already dying you know there's there's something that is always already passing so he says, we had the experience but missed the meaning and approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. Now I want to go back to the rhyming. Why does he do that in the sestets? Does, does that rhyme pattern relate to the theme that he's putting before us or not? Either he's doing it artificially, the way some poets do. I mean, he's just using rhymes to show off or to make it musical. By the way, good, good poets never do that. Rhymes, rhymes always have a function. Always have a function. And by the way, let me, let me preface this. Well, no, go, so why does he do this? Why does he do that? Why does... You know, the only thing that comes to my mind is that it, it's just that kind of like you said, the ceaseless agony, just the cyclical, you know, constant uh, ebb and flow of these things. And then it's interesting that at the end, after the, he brings up the Annunciation, it doesn't, he doesn't do it. Right. Right. Seems to me one of the reasons he does it, and go back to what I said, he could have gone A, A, B, B, C, C, he could have gone A, B, A, B, A, B, he could have gone A, B, I mean, he, there were a variety of options to him, but he doesn't. And, and an interesting thing, it's really important to see that, I, I hope I was, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I did complete justice to the reading of the poem. Um, it, it takes time to do this well, I think, and I don't practice it enough. But um, if you hear the rhythm, the syntax of the lines, they correspond to spoken speech. He's not going da 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 da. The rhythms right, run over from line to line, they all read as they would read if somebody were trying to um, um, reflect his, spoken, his speaking voice. There's nothing artificial or rigid about the lines. And yet, every end rhyme picks up the same end rhyme in the corresponding line in the next sestet. Is that clear? I mean, think, I hope that, is that clear? I mean, that, that shows his mastery over language, that he, he can write a line that corresponds to our own spoken rhythms, and still rhymes so they don't, the rhymes don't call attention to themselves. I could have read this, and I, I think a lot of people wouldn't have even picked it up. You just don't hear it. Because they're so colloquial, they just read. It doesn't go da-da-da-da, bing, da-da-da-da-da, sing, da-da-da-da-da, ring. You know, it doesn't do that. Um, you don't even hear it. The, the lines just run over. But when you put all of them together, suddenly you're where there's this sound that get picks up, gets picked up in a moment, and then in another moment, and in another moment. And the sound isn't repeated, it, it's picked up with another rhyme, with a second rhyme, and a third rhyme, with a third line. So, a new rhyme in each one of the lines. Why does he do that? It, it's a way to connect. A sound connects. So there's a music to it. It's musical. Yeah. And I also think that it's his way uh, of showing that there's this hidden interconnectedness and this harmony or music to life. Mm -hmm. 
and we don't pick it up. And so let me, let me extrapolate here. How many of us go through life experiencing that something that happened was picked up somewhere else? That we're aware of this constancy, this, if you will, rhyming in life, we, rhyming in life that makes us aware of a harmony in the face of all the flux and confusion, that there's a unity or an interconnectedness between things. So that it suggests the presence of a music, a harmony, even when our lives are full of cacophony and noises and... But he goes on in this, after that, and he tells about, you know, well, you, you see things in reflection, yep. and it's almost like he's telling you to go back yep. and look and see what I did. And what I missed. <laughs> Remember the word. <laughs> Remember the words. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. How often do we go through things and we do not, we do not, we do not pick up the connection between that thing and another, because if we did, we would suddenly experience a music. Right. How many, how many of us, I mean, is, is this clear? I mean, we've been doing this all along with poetry, you know, that the poets are teaching us, that, that Eliot's asking us whether we're attentive enough to see the, the hidden interconnections between things and, and so, for a moment, experience the music. Let's say it's, it's a moment when you suddenly feel Christ was there. That the, that the creator of it all was there even if all we saw was chaos. Or meaninglessness. That the fact that things repeat or connect is an indication that there is this music even if we can't hear it. And let me go back even farther for a minute. Remember I said this, when we left the Middle Ages, um, Dante and Shakespeare, one of the most um, well-known tropes, themes, insights, pieces of knowledge that um, people who thought about these things seriously took out of the Middle Ages was this notion of the music of the spheres. I've talked about this before, remember. It, it, it goes as far back as Plato, because Plato had seen it. That there, there is an intellected, we can't experience it with our senses. It's intellected, only the mind can grasp it. There is um, an angelic order connected with each um, planet. Each one has a different note. When you put all of the angelic orders together, uh, governing the planets, they produce a harmony. You can only grasp it with the mind. You, you have to escape the body, in a sense. To... But once you do, you experience the music of the spheres. Dante did it in the Paradiso when he went to the back of the universe, because what he saw then was this extraordinary beauty. Can you imagine, enter, can you imagine entering God's kingdom and not? I mean, it's not going to be interrupted. Everything that goes on there will be in music. It will be a perfect, blessed... So, so, so what he's showing us here is the presence of that here in hints, just glimpses, but it's there. Okay, certainly. Is it also human nature? Because we have to make, as humans, we have to try and make sense of things. We always ask, hey, God, why do you know, bad things happen to good people? And then we, we always analyze what happened during the day, what did I do right, what did I do wrong, you know, whatever. But we have to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we'll go crazy if we don't. Mm -hmm. I think that's a human condition. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, he's just tapped into that. Yep. Got, we got to try to make you know, the, the music of the spheres. Somebody's yeah. got to make sense of it. So somebody's got to yeah. break down something. Whether it's true or not. I, I, and I don't know. Well, I think what he's showing, I, mean, I, 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 I don't want to doubt that. And there's not a question in my mind. 
Um, there's an order in the universe everywhere. So it's not just the human condition. What we've seen in all the literature that we've been reading is this affinity between us as humans and the logos, the, the rationality in nature, everything that science tries to probe. There's an order to things. So there is this affinity between us and the rest of creation. And the question is, how much do we live in it? How much are we one with it? How much are we a part of it? One of the things that poets do, remember, is that they reveal this harmony. And it's felt more immediately because they do it through music. I mean, that's their medium. We're listening partly to music when we read poems all along. So, okay. Anyway, I want to stop. Okay. Bob, you go ahead. Let's just make this. Quick question. I, yeah. I've just been looking at these. You can make a separate poem, like take the, the, the fourth. And B's and the C's. fourth. Yeah, go the fourth line of each, of, each of those makes a. It all deals with wreckage, okay? Where there is an end to the drifting wreckage. Years of living among the breakage, right, right. drifting boat with the slow leak. leakage, wastage, flowers. Yeah, and you go and you could do the same thing with the last. Yes, good for you. The last. Yes. I mean, it's almost a separate. Next week, I want a poem from you. No. <laughs> yes. No. Don't say no. Oh God, Bob, that's not me. You. No, it's not me. I don't. I don't think in those terms. I just. I you, look, you at just it. It was, did it. You don't say you don't. You just did it. You just did it. <laughs> I mean, it just. It would just. You know, it just seems like it's it's rather strange. I mean, Almost uh, all of the lines make some sense if yes. you read them that well, way. Right, yes. Yeah. Yes. They read, if you read them just, you know, every yes. fifth one or every yes. every second one, I mean, they're just, you know. There's rather, a poet in that soul huh? of yours or you would have never seen that. <laughs> no, that's no that's just, yes. it's just because <laughs> my mind, I have a, a, a memory a memory thing that, like I play cards on poker machines, okay? <laughs> I try to beat the machine. Okay, let's... The heat just went up. I brought some sweatshirts again in case anybody gets cold, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen right now. Okay, let's, um, I want to go back and leave a few minutes to pick up those questions that we um, discussed last week um, before we go on. Uh, I, I don't want to take too much time, but, but I'd, I'd like to try to put them in perspective. Um, and remember, my, um, my sense of guardedness about all of this, because in, in one sense, we're moving out of the story, and you know how uncomfortable I am doing that. Um, but it, it seems to me that what we find here is a little bit like what we found in Moby Dick, and it, um, it's an occasion to look at... at um, it's an occasion to look at some things about our faith and why we're here. So I, I took the time. The two, the two questions I asked last time, remember, were, could anything have been done differently in the town? And we've been, I've been asking that question since we started Faulkner. I asked after Sound of the Fury, why did nobody go to the Compsons? I mean, we're in a world in which people are, seem to be so shut off from other people. And could, could any help have been given? Could anybody have done something? was the first question, and the second was um, whether it would have been made any difference if a Catholic community had been there. If there's no difference between us, then we ought to put the different, we ought to stop pretending like there's differences and just live together and get along. Um, but there are differences, and my, my question in my mind was a real one, so I want to return to that for a second, but let me just go back and review something to, to lead up to those two questions. 
Um, we've been, this was not planned on my part. When we first did this, I really had the ancient epics on my mind in Dante and Shakespeare because we were, we were looking at literature that in my mind had a prophetic quality. <clears throat> and if you remember that first sheet I gave out that showed the timeline, it showed Melville and Faulkner, but honestly, in my own mind, I never thought we'd get there because I didn't think you, you guys would last. But <laughs> truly, I'm, I'm really amazed. You know that, I'm, that, you, that you guys have gone through Faulkner? High school freshmen are running the other way out the doors and you guys are sticking this out. It just, it just truly amazes me. You had, you had every occasion to run away because Faulkner is not easy. He's just not easy at all, but you're here. Anyway, there's a line running through it from Dante to sh through Shakespeare to both Melville and Faulkner. And, and in all of it, it's a very s serious prophetic critique of the, the modern commercial regime. We've seen that. Um, I don't want to go back through it except just to remind you that um, the commercial regime has its origins in Dante's time. It, it's, the, it's the model of the regimes that he's critiquing in the Divine Comedy, so he exposes everything about that regime. Um, Shakespeare does remember in Merchant of Venice um, and in Othello. In Merchant of Venice, here, I mean, this is, this is, God, it just stuns me. One of the questions we've been wrestling with is, um, why don't people do something in the town? Everybody's complicit. Everybody. Nobody steps forward. They condemn Eula into Spain, and Linda's lost. There's nothing she can do. There's no way for her to go. She's going to live in a lie whichever way she goes. She's lost. So in some ways, for me to ask this question, what's wrong with Jefferson with respect to the way it lives out its faith, is a serious one. It's serious for Faulkner. That question is the same question we had in another form in Merchant of Venice. Because remember, in Merchant of Venice, the situation we were faced with is this. Antonio borrowed money from Shylock, and his ships went astray and he couldn't pay it. Shylock calls in his debt. He says, I want my pound of flesh. Portia comes in, and remember, the Christians are saying, let him go. Let him off. And the judge says, no, because if you let him go, who's going to risk taking a loan? Because they're it, it won't have any meaning. People can break it. If they hold fast to the law, Antonio's dead. He's executed for the pound of flesh. So the, the situation that Venice as a commercial regime faces is economics and the law bec become so crucial that they become threats to the life of the regime itself. Are we all together? If they let him off, who's going to enter into contracts? Because they're not binding anymore. If they hold to the contract to the law, he's dead. In either case, the commercial regime is dead. It's an inhuman regime. And we saw the spirit of it, remember, in Shylock when, he, when the, the Christians would say, Antonio, don't do this, don't do this. And Shylock said, why are you guys bothered? What's a pound of flesh? I can't buy anything with it. It's not worth muttons or goats, or, remember? Because the tendency in the commercial regime is to evaluate things according to their monetary worth. So the tendency is to devalue the human person. That's at the heart of this regime. Here in the town, we have a similar kind of dilemma. Nobody wants to step forward because if they do, they're going to implicate themselves. 
right? Um, Gavin's the one that does. He makes a fool of himself. Everybody else stays quiet. When Will Varner breaks the news, the town is absolutely divided. Half the town's saying, leave it buried. The other half says, expose them. But both, both halves are condemning them. There is no way for Eula to escape or, or to spank except to leave. And I, I think our sense is, it certainly is mine, you may disagree, but if she does that, um, she can only do it at the, co- at the expense of her daughter. Um, and her, I, I, my own sense, you may disagree here, but my own sense is one of the strongest reasons for what she does in taking her life is for her daughter, that there's nothing else she can do. So what we see at the end of the town is this um, awful situation um, and there seems to be no way out of it. That's the way it's presented. And in, in a sense, if I'm reading the novel correctly, what happens to Eula is an indictment of that respectability. Because even if respectability is intended to protect the sexes and the sexual relationship, particularly the woman and child, it fails. Um, and we saw the same problem in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Adultery is just a, is a major, clearly for the American artist, insofar as they're looking at the American character. That's just, marriage is at the center of our culture. The sin of adultery um, poses a real threat to it. And it's not, it's, not, it's not treated the same way adultery was in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. So what we're looking at is a, is a, um, is a situation that isn't resolved. Eula, Eula takes her life and the forced savage snopes come in and are sent away and that's the end of the town. I think the, ta- the mansion's going to resolve it. I don't, we're not there yet, but, but it's, it's going to have an answer. It's going to be an interesting one. I don't know where you are in your reading. But for a minute, I want to go back to these two questions. Could anybody have done anything differently? And if there had been a Catholic community, could anything else have been done? To answer those two questions requires, I think, that we look at fundamental differences between the Protestant and Catholic soul, mind, heart, sensibility. Um, I've got a couple of things to set out, but I just, I don't know if there's anything you guys want to add to, or to pick up from our discussion. Mark, if you could just wait a second, because there were some people here that, if any of you have things left over and then jump in, but I just, I, um, I, we had to, we had to stop. And I, I don't know where you were, or if any of you had any thoughts, or, but I want to give you guys a chance to pick up things if you want and, and then jump in, but anybody? So if there had been a Catholic church there, then it would have been more hidden. Why do you say that, Marthy? Marthy? Because if you have a church, that was a big sin, and people are going to hide that uh, much more than they would if there wasn't a church there. Hmm. They will hide. Or bring it out, one or the other, but that's, it's, that's an interesting, yeah. Anybody else? Carl, did you have? You and G. what are you guys? Come on, <laughs> come on, you guys. Something's going on back there. Jeannie, what's up? Oh, come on. No, I just, I just, I'm trying to get my head around the idea that you know, if there were 
a strong Catholic presence in the town, would the fact that it's possible in the eyes of the Catholic Church to be forgiven for any sin, really, as long right. as you repentant, right. um, would that would someone have been able to, you know, point you in that direction and yeah. and would would that could that have made a difference? That's a good point. It's really. Why do you say that the town was? Start over, Tracy. Sorry. Why do you say that the town, the people, were didn't bring it out when it first began because they would have been indicted, and yet Gavin was the only one who had tried. Why at that point were they complicit? You know, when it first began. You're asking me? Yeah. Because you, you just said that the town the people kept it quiet because they, you know, would have been indicted if they had brought it out and that Gavin tried. He was the only one who tried. Can and he tried early on. I, wait, first started. I, I don't think he tried. I mean, wait, I want to, let me try to clarify something here. And I'm, I'm not sure it's going to answer your question, so be ready to come back. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think Gavin tried. And... The reason I would say they're complicit is because everybody in the, or major figures in the story say they're complicit. Constantly they say they're complicit. That's the word they use. Chip constantly says it's our sin. I mean, he acknowledges it. Um, so there's an awareness on the part, certainly of the four major narrators, or whatever we're going to call them. Because they know what's going on and they don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. And wait, and go back to Cap, because I don't think Gavin does anything about it. Um, and I'm not sure that I've been clear enough on that. Gavin lives according to a chivalric ideal. Yeah, he acts like a jealous, he acts like the jealous husband. He's, I don't think, no. wait, wait, let me, let me present, let me present Gavin and then you differ. Gavin lives according to an ideal of chivalric romance. Remember that line where Maggie knows that, Chick knows it, Charles knows it that um, he's committed to defending the, the ideal of chastity, whether a woman deserves it or not. Right. So it, it's, he's, he's, he's like Coyote, or in some ways Hamlet. He thinks a lot about things. He wants to spare her honor, so he grabs to Spain, but he does that more in the sense of a man of honor wanting to confront a man who's doing something, rather than breaking, making it public and breaking it open and saying, what you're doing is wrong. Because he doesn't, even when Eula comes to him that night, he said, he doesn't say, what you're doing is wrong, stop it. Right. You know, she offers, to, she offers herself sexually to him and he refuses. What we see in Gavin and Eula is more along the lines of a romantic relationship, idealized. Mm -hmm. but, but there's nothing in what Gavin does that, that I'm aware of when I think about him that gets close to dealing with this in terms of a law broken or adultery. So Everybody's aware of it. Way they were dancing, like he was just dealing with that moment. Except from that honor code. Yeah. Yes. I mean, largely. But except, you know that before that, Despain had been driving his roadster by and insulting him, and sent that rake with a rubber. Mm -hmm. So everything Despain did was um, mean, taunting. Crass. Yeah. I mean, I can't even find taunting. I mean, you have to add an adjective to that because he's he's such a extremely taunting, ex <laughs> arrogant, brutal. Man, and clearly there has to be something in him in the constancy, or Eula wouldn't be in a relationship. But in terms of the way he deals with things as a man, 
he, I mean, he's a lot like Houston and Mink. He is, he, he's so, there's a brutal side to him that, that I think Gavin's responding to it. So it isn't just defending the chastity. Despain has been mean, ugly, insulting. Um, I can't find words bad enough to describe that. I don't know what you would want the town people to do. It's none of their business. And that's why none of them are going to react. And it's the same way as right here in this town. That's what people do, and it's no one else's business. Is adultery, That's what people think. Is adultery not, is a sin, wait, wait, hold on. let me try to, to respond to more. We've got the Ten Commandments that God gave his people. Mm-hmm. He would not have given them unless he was expecting people to live by them and and with some sense of, of a law being honored so that if something were to happen to break those laws, it was incumbent upon the people to do something about it. That's from God in the Old Testament. And we have Christ in some ways following that up. So can we just say, when, particularly since that's a mortal sin, it's, I mean, it, it strikes right at the heart of civilization, it goes right at the heart of everything here, that it's not our, anybody's business, that we just leave it's people alone. It's not anybody else's business. Well, yeah. aren't we supposed to, anyone who says the Our Father, I mean, I always kept tell my kids, there's an Our Father clause. <laughs> <laughs> there's the Our Father clause, and you, and you forgive those. So, right. you know, so maybe they, if you condemn the, the sin, you still have to treat them as, you know, you have to forgive the sin. Right. Particularly if you expect to be forgiving your right. 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 And there's not much spoken about in God in either one of the three books. These are not people that that talk about God. They don't you don't hear them talk about they're going to church to praise God or to pray to God. That's not in there. Well it is, Marcy. Hold on. Just at the end of that I mean it it first of all it's present in Sound of the Fury by denial. We know that everywhere. It's present in Sound of the Fury at the very end in the Dilsey episode when she goes to church and what's offered in that church experience is, I think the reason it ends that book is that it's an answer to the absence of God everywhere else. It's in, it's in wait, hold on, it's in Go Down Moses. It's explicitly here in this book because constantly people, t- we, we, we're told that um, Mrs. Varner hires the ministers, that there are certain things going on, that ministers do certain things that are illicit and ugly. Um, What's and, that telling you about their religion? No, no, I know, I know, but I just, but hold on. And um, where else was I going? Oh, and, and particularly in the Montgomery Snopes episode, he makes it clear that Gavin and, um, and what's his name, Grover um, Winbush, are, are not going to do anything about it because if they do, they're going to offend these Christian people. So we, we, there's enough going on in the book that lets us know that these, these Christians live hypocritically. They live a certain way, but I, I don't think, I mean, it really goes to, I think, um, Jenny's point that there is this sense of an Old Testament law and not a very strong sense of forgiveness or mercy in this people in the way that they deal with things. I read that passage too last week where, where I, can't, I think it's um, Chick, I'm not sure, but he's, he, he talks about the ease with which people forgave themselves, but used the work when they looked at, at, at what this couple had done as an abomination. I mean, it, it, it doesn't even get close to a sense of forgiveness as you would, you know, 
think about it when you read the Our Father or something else. But I got a different aspect. One is that the thesis of that there are churches and they should have done something. When I look at this from the perspective of what we live today, would there be any description of, of a challenge to anything? And if there was, where would it come from? It would come from the newspapers, it would come from TV, it would be part of some daily rag that would be basically published about somebody's uh, failings, basically with regard to what they, what they, what somebody did in the, in the at the Pentagon or whether it was in a small town. I mean, there there were media that basically would. Except they had to get it from people who were involved at that concrete level, or we'd never get it. But the, but the issue is, is that if you didn't have that to basically to spread that word, how would you basically even begin to understand and, and to, 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 to relate it so that someone knew about it even? Beyond, beyond, let's say, a, a, a limited number of people. And a limited number of people are not going to to be the, the basis by which it got spread, and it's the media that does it today that makes that that happen. And, but I'm not yeah. sure that we're talking about the same thing, because uh, at least well, in my mind, well, it, in a way, it's not. No, you're right. But I mean, because it, you know, we've advanced. In we're, the well, no, because I'm, I'm talking about a, a very concrete situation and a limit. Yeah. It's an adulterous relationship between a man and a woman, a marriage, a daughter, a yeah, friend. No, you know that. It's at a local level, and most of us can relate, I think, to those sorts of things, because I think most of us are aware um, of things that have gone on in our own lives, in our own families, or people we know. So yeah. we don't have to wait on the media to experience these things. They're, I'm assuming it's a part of most of our lives. But, but I think Faulkner makes it pretty clear that everybody in the town knows about this, yeah. right. and has known about it right. for 15 years or right. long. Yeah. It's none, of it, none of their business. Yeah. No one is going to do that. If there was a Catholic church there and the priest knew about it, I mean, it's kind of his job to go and say it. Is it? Wait, why is it not the parishioners? Why is it not the parishioners? No, well, okay, let me ask you back. Let me ask, why is it not the... Wait, hold on. Marcy, wait, Tracy, because we understand by our baptism that we are priest, prophets, king, every one of us. If you would say, why doesn't the priest go do it, I would ask you, why don't we go do it? <laughs> well, I'm just wait, wait, brainstorming, wait. Like, you know, what? like, what? I'm just brainstorming, like, what could the people have done if everybody in the town knows, and the priest is the one who, you know, like... Let it be you, for what would you do? Did, were we well, here what I week? do, well, it, you know, it's interesting, I've been thinking about this, because obviously you're right, we do have situations in our lives that are similar or whatever, and, um, you know... It's so easy to have that live a relative in relativism, like, well, you're doing that. I know it's wrong, but okay, <laughs> you know. And so to to say something to someone, yeah, that's I don't have any experience with that. When we're talking about not, sex and sexual order, I think it's very different than what? other types of problems that people have, and we know. If you've got a friend who's got a drug problem or an alcohol problem, I think most of us would say, I wouldn't have any problem or I don't have a problem. You know, sitting down, talking with them on the phone, saying, hey. That's somebody you know. He's talking that's, about that's right. the townspeople. Well, the townspeople know They're them. Not Some of them know, know them, though. You know, but when it, when it comes yeah, to sex, I, I think that people look at it differently. People look at it like Marcy's pointing out. That's 
to consulting adults. It's their business. If it's wrong, they've got oh, God in themselves to worry about. If they were my friend, about. it would be different. But I'm well, if somebody on the, asks you, on this side of town and somebody else on the other side of town. you can't really inject yourself into that situation. It's, no. And that's a minefield, too, today. Well, I mean, you, you, you get shot doing things like that. Yeah. Well, but yeah. should, you, should you risk being shot, Joan? Did you have a, it looked like you were. <laughs> no, I'm saying that the um, early church had prescriptions for this where you gather two or three together and go approach the person. Intervention. Intervention, <laughs> right. And, you know, so you don't go by yourself, but you, you know, have a friend or two. I have the feeling that this town is small enough that people, everybody did know everybody else. And maybe they weren't Eula's friend, but the women who were concerned could have gotten together and gone to talk to Eula. Or one woman. Yeah. Why does it come? They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. Yes, they could. Here, nope, Doc, Doc you, you, you've been quiet. Do you want to, I'm going to jump in here a minute and, and offer a Catholic perspective here for, do you want, but before I do, no, 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 come on, do you, what would you, how's you, what? I don't, I don't, I mean, we've talked about it, I don't think that it would have made a difference if there were a Catholic mm -hmm. presence nope. there. The people right. might have had, right. there might have been more courage for somebody yeah. to step forward. But there's no teeth, you can't, you was not That's a friend right. with anybody. Here, let me, let me give you a hypothetical. How about this? Go Spain ahead. is the president of the bank. Mm -hmm. You're going to talk to him about him having an affair? Here, here it is again. There, you want the, your money to be here? Okay, there? here, here's Father's homily for those of you. and. And this is just universal. So at the beginning of our church here, Christ says unto, unto, not unto, you're losing your pocketbook, unto the blood of your life. He asked people to sacrifice themselves because if they ever start leveraging themselves against what they're going to lose, where will they stop? It could be a convenience of a couch or house or your money. We're not supposed to let the world have that kind of control to determine our actions by it. Because if we do, the question is whether or not we're separating ourselves from him and each other. That's Christ. We're going to argue with about the argue with him. Here, let me let me let me go to the board here for a second because let me offer a hypothetical. You got a son or a daughter doing drugs. Um, alcohol. An addiction. It it can be playing with a game. It can be pornography. Let it be what you will. You've got a daughter a son sleeping with somebody. That's your son. And he's not, if you're Catholic, you know you're not supposed to. In any of those instances, I just graded them. I mean, take your pick. Is your response going to be, it's none of my business, or I don't do anything? If what Christ says is we're all brothers and sisters to each other, I don't know why it would be confined to our family, because if, if we take him seriously, that's something we're supposed to do. Now remember, this is the, 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 the postulate, the given. The great call to us as Catholics is to bring law and love together, law and mercy. For the Protestant, that's wiped away because there is no natural law. There's only faith. Reason and the law are of another order. And we see that everywhere in the town. And I'll, and I'll try to clarify that that's not clear right now. But for a Catholic, we're supposed to bring love and law together. And you know... Everybody, I'm assuming everybody in this room knows, it's much easier to do one or the other. Men can enforce the law and say, get the hell out of here. A woman can be full of compassion and, and enable the sin. It will go on forever. How do you reconcile both of them at the same time? You go to your son and say, you can't do this anymore. And if he continues to do it, say, 
I mean, I'm hypothesizing right now. So before you all jump, you can't stay here anymore. You cannot. We're only supposed to act for the good of another human being. If what we're doing is letting that go, then we're enabling, it's a sin of omission. Indirectly, we're giving our support to that sin. And we're complicit like this town. And, and by the way, remember I presented, what we're seeing in Jefferson is an enabling city. I'm going to call it that. I, I don't think anybody, I'd be sorry, I'm surprised if anybody disagree. It's an enabling city just like Troy. We're back 3,000 years ago. Is, can we look at the world today the way Christ has shown it without seeing any city that's not enabling in some way as an, as an earthly city? All the saints are saying, get out of this. I mean, we're, we're pilgrims. We're, we're not supposed to get bound by the city, dependence on money, whatever the dependence will be, because we're trapped. So you say to your son, um, let it be any one of those. And you, and you say, in, in, you have to go. I'll do everything I can to help you. We don't want you not to be here because we love you, but you cannot do this. Now, how you do that Working that out, but let me just, that's because that's a hypothetical. But it seems to me that's the problem we have. How to bring, how to, how to put a force behind the law to make it real and still love a person. Because I think all of us know it's much easier to say when you get angry at somebody to get out and feel like you don't love that person anymore. We're asked to do both of them. That's our call. And I'm saying it should, it should be easier for a Catholic than a Protestant because a Protestant has no notion of natural law, the nature is depraved, he has no notion of the logos or the natural virtues. If, if you're raised in a family, a Protestant family, how do you teach people virtue when that word doesn't have a meaning to you? All you've got is your faith, you're saved. You're saved, you're damned. Now, just hold on to that for a second. Let me give you two, two thoughts to keep in mind in light of this question. And remember, I'm jumping way out on a limb here because our work is the town, but I remember stopping Moby Dick once when we had to get into the theology and I was sort of amazed. So I just want to offer these two thoughts here because to me they're really interesting. A Catholic brings to his experience of the world two things that a Protestant can't. Um, if you take a look at that page, you saw it with Dante. Um, Where is the Protestant church in Jefferson? It's absorbed into the community. What's the end of the community? Respectability. It's what everybody lives for. If that's your end, and that's an expression of the church, and somebody does something, how can you do anything but condemn them or feel implicated if you don't? Is respectability the highest end for a Catholic? So, in a, Catholic, in a Catholic world, we've got a church. Take a look at that sheet I gave you that, that I handed. You had it with Dante, but... Um, I just quickly... Render unto Caesar, my kingdom is not of this world. I will give thee the keys. Fear God, honor the king. Um, 
give to Caesars what Caesars gods to him. We obey God rather than men. There is no power but from God. The princes of this world come to naught. They said, Lord, here are two swords. That everywhere in the church, in its very beginnings, starting with Christ, we got a very clear distinction that there's a difference between the church and Caesar. Caesar's of the body, of the temple order. The church has the care of the soul, am I right? So the church is a, is a body. I don't want to call it an institution, but it's call it a body, an institution, whatever you want to call it, that stands higher than the temporal order because it has a higher authority. That authority was given by Christ to Peter, here are the keys, and to the disciples. Now stop and think about this for a moment. Why, and the Protestant denies that, why is that power so important to say to Peter, you have the power to bind and loose. It's our business to take care of sin. It's not our business to condemn it. It's to say no to it in, I mean to say no, to stop it, and, and offer mercy. Um, Christ gave Peter the keys because he knew that for, for the church or, or men to be able to deal with evil in the world, because evil was so great, he would need a, a commensurate power, a power great enough to do that. And he said to the disciples, I give you this power to cast out demons, to heal, to, you know. So, so the church stands as a structure above the community. Its end can never be political respectability or decency. Its end is holiness. It calls every human being to become holy, to enter more and more fully into the life of Christ and sacrifice himself at whatever cost. And those are his words, to the extent of blood. We cannot ever allow anything to get in the way of that at the expense of our souls. We are asked to renounce the world. So the call for us is to be involved in the world. Christ came into it, like the cave, like Plato's cave, in order to help us return to God. And we know that we can't return to God without repenting, without dealing with our sins. So the church offers a structure that's both immersed in the world and higher than it because its ultimate end is the salvation of souls. Caesar has no business dealing with souls. If the earthly community ever starts dealing with souls, we're in the midst of a totalitarian regime. And we know from experience, I mean, theocracies and, or communism, that sadly we've had experience what happens when you're under a totalitarian regime. So we live, but we live with two worlds, and the church offers us a place to go a sanctity, something to answer our sins and to help us answer the sins of other people. Because we're not supposed to just isolate. We are brothers and sisters to each other. The, the courage that it takes to do that, I don't have a question. I mean, it, what a terrifying thing. To, to risk that is to risk terrifying things. Those are not easy things. That's one. In the, in the world that we see in Jefferson, the church is absolutely immersed. It's absorbed into the political realm. Um, Mrs. Varner, uh, sorry, Mrs. Varner chooses the ministers. <laughs> what does that tell you? And you've got you know Mink or Montgomery saying you're not going to you're not going to expose us because all these God-fearing Christians are not you know. So in this Protestant world, remember Calvin. Calvin took away the sacraments. He made the political entity the church. 
There is nothing higher. That's it. That's why we've got these New England theocracies in the beginning of America. It's what Hawthorne's dealing with in Scarlet Letter. That's the first. In a Catholic community, there would be a greater authority present and, I believe, a greater call to risk, to courage, to self-sacrifice. Because if you accommodate yourself to the political world, it's going to be easier to be complicit to go along with it. It's going to be much harder to say no and stand behind it, or to love to the extent that Christ asks us to. That's the first. The second is the church has the sacraments. Now hold on, just stop and think about it. It's just not the priest, because we're all called to be priests. The priest himself stands for a higher order. He's supposed to stand with God. Do all priests do that? Absolutely not. Do all Catholics live their faith? Absolutely not. Lots of them will hide their, you know, their sins more. Um, because I think they're a little bit more, maybe more terrified, I'm not sure. But certainly they will hide them. We know that. But the priest represents Christ in his person. Yeah? In the, so he, he can bring in confession. He can um, offer the sacraments as a way of trying to help a person out of that community. I remember a couple of weeks ago when Suzanne and I were talking at the dinner table going through this and thinking, for the, Jefferson, for the Jefferson town people, there's nothing more than respectability. What Faulkner does is create this story that leaves us right there. And my, I remember sitting at the table and going, there's nothing for them but a Catholic world, and that's the one thing they don't have. If that's all you've got, you're done. I mean, you, you, you've got what the end of the story gives us. There's nowhere to go. There's no hope. There's no out. Not for Eula, not for Spain, not for Linda. You also got the sacraments. The priest stands with Christ. He's supposed to. How many priests do? How many individuals do? How many of us do? Facing these, having to say no to our son to get out of our home or, you know, or stop doing something. Or marriage is not a civic relationship as it is in the. It's sacramental. It ties a husband and wife to the self-sacrificing love of Christ. It means they're supposed to offer themselves, bear each other's sins. Now, I know there's a problem here because how Eula's going to bear Flem's sins, I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm more sympathetic with her adulterous relationship with Spain than I am with her marriage with Flem. It's a horrible thing. I mean, I'm with Gavin on this one, you know, 18 years of constancy. and Marriage is a sacrament. It asks of a husband and wife to offer each other the love that Christ offered all of us, to break bread. How many parents today grow up enabling their children? How many? I mean, I can't, I can't say that I haven't or that Suzanne has. I mean, when, I, when we look back on our past, one of the things we most want to try to undo is so many of the failures we had when we were younger. We've got it. We live in a culture that, that invites complicity because we're dependent on money and social status and respectability and how much do we give up our lives when we make those compromises? That's the culture we live in. The greater part of our culture is not religious, it's, it's um, secular. How easy is it to go against that culture? I'd say, I mean, you can hang me on this one, but I'd say, remember if, Plato, if we take it seriously, most of us grow up learning to enable, whether we know it or not, or, or fighting against it. But that's one of the major problems every one of us faces. Marriage is a sacrament. We've been asked to give our lives. 
to completely humble ourselves before each other. The Eucharist is a sharing in the crucifixion. That's the cross. I mean, I'm, I don't know how we can take it without being aware that at that moment we're invited more deeply into his cross. Christ says, pick up your cross, follow me. And he's asked us to give up everything in the world. Not, we can't let bank accounts hold on to us or anything else. Um, we're supposed to, that's our call. And finally, confession. The Eucharist and confession are both reconciling. They're expressions of mercy. It should help us to take mercy to each other. Exactly when we get angry at somebody because of something we're doing wrong, we have to remember that's exactly why Christ came, to love somebody when they didn't deserve it. So what I'm suggesting here is that in every way, <laughs> this, this strange book that, you know, that, that I love, Faulkner's brought us to a point where there's nothing more for them to do. If there were anything more for them to do, it would be a church and it's not there. And the serious question I'm asking is, if it were there, would Catholics do what they've been asked to do? No. I would hope, my own, my own hope would be somebody would. But I, anyway, I'm not, I'm not as negative because I still believe that Christ is very much with us and we have to learn to risk ourselves. Anyway, that's what I'd like to throw out. That it, in one ways, what's going on in the town is a reminder of something for us to be on guard against because we live in an enabling culture. It's so easy for us to become complicit and go along when we've been asked to bring love and law together. And that, that is, I, I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. Um, and where we do, there are fruits to it. It may cost a life somewhere, that's what the martyrs do. Um, but our belief is that some great good, if we don't, the real question is, are we supporting the bad? And we're not supposed to do that. Our, all of our actions should be in love, should not be for the bad of another. If we're loving a person, we want that person's good. And very often to do that means risking ourselves and even risking a separation. And Christ's words on that are, I came to divide, I came to separate father from son, mother from daughter. Because we even let our family attachments get in the way of Christ. So it seems to me everything about what we're seeing here is in some ways... It's, it's as if Faulkner has a sense that there's something more, but it's not within the range of his life. That there is this great wrong, there's no answer to it. That's where he leaves us. It's a dark, dark ending. Um, I'm not content to leave it there, although I love this book. I, I love the trilogy, you know that. Um, anyway, let me stop. Let me stop. Go ahead, Carl. Oh, I think I understand you conceptually, philosophically. <laughs> religiously, but when it comes to execution, which is the question you've been asking us, I'm having a, still having a real problem when it comes to dealing with people who may not have that same understanding, may not have that same belief. Yeah. Well, if they did, they wouldn't be doing it. If they did, they wouldn't be doing that. There's this lovely quote that Fogg had. That's the question he's asking. Yeah. Well, but the, the, the biggest issue is that if you look at Dante and you look at Shakespeare and you look at Melville and you come back to Faulkner, every single one of those is about, actually just about everything we've read, is about the problems in those particular societies that are being unmasked. If you look at the history of the South, they lost a war. The only part, that's why the South is so different from the rest of the country, because there's that, we've, we've never lost. 
they have. And you deal with that, and if you look at the way those societies formed, and look at the, historically, and the way that they grew up in the township, and the slavery, and the sharecropping, and you know, you look at the segregation and all that, it is all a process of what those cities were. And you see all of the problems of it that Faulkner's bringing out, and what happens as it begins to fail near the end. And you ask, what if there was Catholic? It's impossible for it to be there in that society. It's not their Catholic churches. We're here in the South and we've got Catholic, Catholic churches there. Faulkner keeps alluding to them no, sort of ironically. But, 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 but if you look at it, in those particular communities, they were not the white Protestant ruling class of the South mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. They were usually immigrant or Indian, in which case they were all driven out of the far end of Or the marginalized yeah. always, yeah. Okay. Right, but but sure. so, so in, the, in Jefferson, and it's impossible for a Catholic community to be there because the community wouldn't have been that way if it had been traditionally Catholic that whole time. It would not have been. Let me, if there's no, I'm going to go on, but let me offer, I don't know if this will answer your concern, Carl, but let me give, and I'm not saying these are answers, you know, but on a practical level, they, they line up with what we're talking here. Um, I don't know if this is going to shock you. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope people are not too shocked here. Suzanne and I lived together before we were married. We, um, I, I grew up with notions about marriage that, I mean, I, I don't want to go into the past of that, but I, anyway, I don't, I don't want to go into the details of that, but um, there was something in my heart that was convinced that marriage was forever, and so much of my early life was not that way. And it formed me, and so my answer was, I, I, I'm not going to marry, and I'm, I'm not even sure that I would have married at all at that point, but I certainly believe that I wouldn't do anything unless I knew it was forever. Suzanne and I lived together. I hope, hope you're okay with this dog. Sort of like, I meant to ask her this earlier, but it wasn't. Here, we lived together. It's always been like this. <laughs> yeah. In, uh, Don't give him I, a ride home. That's enabling. Um, her mother, her mother, dear, dear woman, I mean, I loved her dearly, um, was not Catholic, she was sort of Quaker, Episcopalian, it was, Suzanne grew up in a Protestant world, and, you know, she came to us one day, and she said, I, I cannot tell you the gratitude I feel for that woman, for the courage that it took for her to do that, she said, I cannot visit you at your home anymore, because you're not married, you're welcome at our home, my home. She was, she, her husband died, Suzanne's father died when she was just a, a babe. But she said, you're welcome here, um, but I, I will not be able to come here anymore. That was a sort of shocking moment for us because we didn't expect it. I mean, we'd been married for some time and Suzanne's mom just, you know, we, there was no, um, I mean, we'd lived together. But that was a wonderful thing she did because she drew a line, certainly for me, for both of us, and said, You've drawn, I mean, you know, you've drawn a line. We understand it in terms of marriage. Let me go back enough, I mean, just in simple terms. There was a point in, I think I've hinted at some of this, the struggles we had with some of our children. I asked our sons to leave our home. Um, so we've gone through these things. And even more recently, I, don't, I mean, I want to be careful here. Let me try to... I know of fathers who have to ask their sons not to sleep with somebody. A, a son with another woman, maybe even intending to marry her. 
let me extrapolate and say, if that were my son, I would say to him, I, we cannot visit you, and you're not, I would go even farther than Suzanne's mom. I'd say, you cannot come to our house, because either way, you're sanctioning it. I would say to that, if he were my son, we will meet you at dinner. We will go out, because I don't want to lose our friendship. But you cannot, you cannot do this. I cannot, I cannot go there. You're not welcome here. Now, I'm trusting that everybody knows that's not easy to say to your own children. But if you don't, here's another example. We grew up in California. I mean, we raised our family in California, and our dearest friends, very, we, Suzanne and I didn't start out Catholic. We converted. Dear, dear, the dearest friends were Catholic. They had three girls. Very, very Catholic. I mean, they raised that way. We didn't. We came into the church. And one of his daughters moved in with a guy. You can imagine how that broke his heart. Just broke his heart. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what he did for the long. I don't have, I don't know what he would. I don't want to mention names here, but, um, but maybe four or five years into their relationship, the boy, because they knew the dad and mom disapproved, they had to express it somehow. The boy came. Just this was a two years ago, two or three years ago. Yeah. He came to the father and said, "I'm sorry. I want to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage." I can't even speak about it without. Imagine a father having to give up his son, that's Christ, and then getting him back again with the joy he would have felt. What I'm saying is, I mean, it, it is our business. We are brothers and sisters to each other, but somehow we have to find a way to do this that both follows the law and love. Or, or at least that's my understanding of our faith. You want to call me on my faith? Go to the catechism, or, but that's our faith. And what I'm finding in Jefferson is nothing like that. And I, and I'm, I, I mean, I believe this. I mean, I've lived in the world long enough. You can go to lots of Catholic communities, and you're not going to find it any differently. You're not going to find it differently in the, in, the, in the parishioners, and you're not going to find it any different in priests. But that doesn't mean our church isn't the real church. I mean, the church has always had, you know, I mean, it, we live in the world, so... Anyway, let me stop there. Unless there's something brief, I want to break and go back to Faulkner. I think it's, there's some wisdom in looking at what this Jefferson problem. I'm so in admiration of Faulkner that he had the courage to take this through to its ultimate end and see to leave it there. Where do you go? I can't find a place for it in my understanding of the Jefferson community. And when I set it against our own faith, suddenly some things begin to make sense. Even if it means we're faced with something harder. We have the sacraments to help us. We have an authority given to us. We're asked, we're asked to have greater courage. We're asked to take risks, believing God will follow them up. It may cost, a, it may cost blood. It may cost a life. We know that going in. Why, why else do we honor the saints daily? Um, that's our life. Imagine a world without that. It's so hard. For, I mean, when we go to funerals, when we go to mass, I just, I just shake my head and think, how does the world manage without what we have? Anyway, let me stop. Just a noticed point. Sorry? Just a noticed point. The examples you're citing are all familiar within the family. Mm -hmm. What we're dealing with in our being is extra, or ex-familiar, outside of them. 
and how you handle that outside the family is what we have been talking about. I went, I mean, I, see, but I said, Car I think you have drawn the line where many people do draw the line. They say, you know, in my backyard. No, but I said really, I really, I said it really explicitly. We are brothers, and, and let me, I, I, I'll give I know an example. You did. I We're know brothers you did. and sisters to each other. I know, I know of a, of a woman outside of my family that I went to because of what she was doing. I didn't go condemning. I went asking questions and opening something. We met a couple of times. It didn't go any farther, sadly, in my mind. But, but I went, and I, I, we may not have a friendship. I mean, we still say hello, we pass, but. It seems that we were all called to do that. We cannot close ourselves behind walls. We have to risk, and we have to do it. I hope, I hope I'm clear. It, it is a frightening, knee-shaking thing. Well, you got to 10 on the level of difficulty. I'll mm -hmm. give you that. That's hard to do. But I get a kick out of that one guy, I forget his name, and he, he, he thought it was wrong, so he took his money out of that bank to put in the other bank. But then when he met, you know, Flim Snopes, he was like, oh, I see why she's having an affair. And he puts his money back, you know. It's like, but you remember what he said after that, too. I mean, it made Gavin really angry. And he deserved it, yeah. No, but he said, I want them out of town. His right. response was to kick them out. He still didn't, you know. I mean, over and over and over again, we see. That's why Gavin opened that chapter saying, you cannot go against a town. We are not, we are not supposed to believe that. Saints stood up against towns. And, and it implies later on that she has the choice that, that they will look at Linda as her mother was a harlot or her mother committed suicide. I mean, right. It, How much worse going to get? I mean, so Cut. she sees the town as that. Yeah. She yeah. doesn't yeah. see yeah. anyone in there that's Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm worn out. Let's, can we turn, go back to the mansion? <laughs> I was wondering, my arm had started hurting. I'm going to have to do this really quickly. My shoulder hurt. Yes, that's where I got the shot. I'm feeling it. You're feeling it. I'm in some ice water. Just, it's getting hot. I'm drying up here. Um, That wore me out. Um, I planned. To, I didn't think we were going to spend this much time on this, but I, I hope everybody's okay with it. It's a, I, I, obviously it's a very, very deep, obscure, troubling. I mean, it, it asks us to go into dark places and with with light. And I, I know how. I mean, I, I don't want to go through personal things, but I, but I know how terrifying that is. I know how. To whom do you turn? You can't go to a book and find how to do it. Because, because, truly, because the circumstances differ, and what different people do is going to be different. But somehow, Joan of Arc carried a sword into battle. Francis carried a peace branch. I mean, one of the things about saints is every one of them was so different, um, and yet they, they brought the love of God, of Christ, into what they did. And so... I certainly don't want to make this sound easy because I don't think it is. I hope I have it. Anyway, it, I, I wanted to spend more time, but we don't have time, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I want, I've got three major questions, and then I want to look at a couple of passages before we leave. 
In the first five chapters, chapter four is from the point of view of Montgomery Ward Snopes. I don't know if any of you felt how odd that was. In all three volumes, we almost hear nothing from Flem Snopes. He cannot, he almost never speaks. It's almost like he doesn't have a voice. The Snopes are not reflective people. I mean, they're a crude, brutal clan, and yet towards the end of that opening section, we get a section from the point of view of Montgomery Snopes. And if you remember, he, um, it begins with him and um, Flem negotiating, and um, Flem makes it clear to Montgomery Snopes that, and, and Montgomery knows, five years, Minka's gonna get out. And Flem knows that when he gets out, he's gonna kill him. So he wants to set up an escape to get Mink to stay another 20 years. So he's, he's um, telling, he, he and we, in the chapter before, told by Ratliff, we got all this rehashing of what Flem's had to do to get Montgomery Snopes into a federal prison. And, and it was just amazing to see what he had to go through to, to make this happen. The, the finding a ride, going out to get the whiskey, coming back, the, the political pull on Clarence and legislator, you know, to get the laws. I mean, there's, there's not enough for him to do. <coughs> he couldn't stop. But Montgomery gets caught. He's sent away to federal prison, or to um, parchment. <coughs> Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Um, Montgomery's response to Flem is $10,000. And Flem doesn't even talk to him because he knows how ridiculous it is. And it ends with Flem making it clear that he will blackmail him because he's got an envelope stamped with a naked picture in it so he, he can send him away to a federal prison for even more years. So um, Montgomery has to go on this errand for practically nothing. He goes to um, Reba's whorehouse, and while he's there, he meets, I mean, we learned the story about Virgil and uh, um, Bonzo. And it's in that, let me just, if I can read the whole thing. It's a funny line because it, for me it applies to all of us. I thought it was wonderful. Um, oh, it's around, it's, it's around 80, I mean 88, 92, somewhere I have to find it. Oh, here, 92, nine, 91. He comes and offers her $10 as a gift. He's not going to sleep with any of the women. He's, he, that doesn't appeal to him. He's come to give her $40 to send to Mink in prison to help with this setup on page 91. All right, now what I do with the 40? Send it to my great uncle Mick Stopes in Parchment. What's he in for? He killed a man named Zach Houston back in 1908. Did Houston deserve killing? I'm so glad for her. I don't know, but from what I hear, he sure worked to earn it. Poor son of bitch. How long is your uncle in for life, I said. All right, she said, I know about that too. When will he get out? About 1948, if he lives and nothing else happens to him. All right, how can I do it? I told her the address and all. You could send it from another prisoner. This is really interesting because, remember, prisoner doesn't mean just always people who are locked up. There's a sense in which all of us are imprisoned in some way in the spiritual world. And the question is, what can we do to get out? You could send it from another prisoner. I doubt it. She said, I've never been in jail. I don't aim to be. She takes it literally. And I mean, you could do, take it both ways. 
Sent it from a friend then. All right, she said. She took the money and folded it. The poor son of a bitch, she said. Which one are you talking about now? Both of them, she said. All of us, every one of us, the poor sons of a bitches. Here, I meant to write this down as one of the themes. <laughs> it seems to me one of the things that Faulkner is showing in this story is that we are all poor sons of a bitches. Um, in some way, that phrase applies to all of us. Um, he gives her the money and he goes back. Flem asks why he's back so soon, and he says <laughs> to be safe from Flem's because he knows the sooner he gets in jail, the sooner he'll be safe from all the Snopes, and he lists them off. It's a funny line. Um, on the bottom of 92, I, I don't want to read it, but it's a wonderful passage. He says, so now I had a set of steel bars between now I was safe from the free world. This is so important. Safe from the free world. This is, the, I hope everybody hears the ironies. In this world, is anybody safe from Flem Snopes? If the whole world, if the whole Jeffersonian community, and because the Flems are in office, I mean the Snopes are in office, who's safe anywhere? Now, this isn't peculiar to the South. This is a national problem was safe from the free world, safe and secure for a little while, yet from the, the free Snopes world where Flem was parlaying his wife into the presidency of a bank and Clarence even drawing per diem as a state, state senator between Jackson and Grosso Street to take the wraps off Virgil. Uh, he talks about Byron in Mexico and the other Snopes elsewhere. We've got Snopes in the legislature, Snopes in the town controlling things, so it's not like there's a, he wants to get in jail to be safe from this free world. And then um, it ends, we don't have time on 95, but it, it's Montgomery's recount of watching Mink get caught at the top of 95. But refusing to not look was still all I had left now, the last sorry, lousy, almost worthless penny, the damn little thing looking like a little girl playing mama in the calico dress and sunbonnet that he believed was Flem's idea. Go down. It took a little doing to persuade him that a petticoat and a woman's sunbonnet was all Flem could get. Walking, I had impressed that on him, not to run, but walk, a forlorn and lonely and fragile and ailing in that empty penitentiary compound as a paper doll blowing across a rolling mill. Still walking, even after he's passed. He watched them, he watches them, and so he even ran before he had to. He ran right at them before I even saw them, before they stepped out. Yeah, Bush. I was proud not just to be kin to him, but of belonging to what Reba called all us poor sons of bitches. Um, Montgomery and the warden meet, and the warden offers to um, lock him up in solitary confinement to protect him from mink. And Montgomery says, call him in here because he knows he won't need it. He sees something in the mink that makes him know the mink's not going to be a threat. He calls him in and this is what passes between him and uh, mink and Montgomery. So he came in, the bruises and slashes from the butts and the, bla um, the blades of the sights were healing fine. The blackjack of course never had showed. Heidi said to me, I reckon you, you'll see Flem before. He's not, he's not enraged, he doesn't jump at him. He's calm, he says, hello. He knows Montgomery's gonna get out and see Flynn before he does. Yes, I said, 
Tell me you hadn't ought to use that dress, but it don't matter. If I had made it out then, maybe I would have changed, but reckon I won't now. I reckon I'll just wait. Um, and that's what he begins to do. He waits, and that's where I want to go next. But before we get there, just for a second, why this chapter on, Minks, or on Montgomery Snopes? What? Why? It's so, un, if, if you put all of the chapters together, you get chapters from Ratliff's point of view, Gavin's point of view, Gowan, Chick, all the way through here. We've never had a chapter given by a Snopes. And yet here in the middle of this now, we get a whole chapter from the point of view of Montgomery. He's just setting up the rest of the story. What happened in the prison break and why he was there longer? He could have done that with Ratliff easily, easily. If you've been watching Ratliff, as well, Ratliff knows everything. He could have described everything that took place and we would have known it. He's doing something to give us an insight into Montgomery. Because you know that every time we get a story, it's from the inside of a person. So we've been let in on this Montgomery Snopes in a way that not been true of any other Snopes we've known. How, what's your response to Montgomery here? Karen, what was your response? Did you, did you, Karen? Did you have a response to him at all? Anybody? He has more emotional health than the rest. Flesh it out, Mercy. He understands other people. He is sensitive to them, whereas these other people are not. Yeah. They're concerned about me. And Montgomery sees how the other people feel. Yeah, he can yeah. sense that. He feels for Mink. He feels. I mean, he, he's, he's, he says he's proud of him. Yeah, he, he's embarrassed, and I think he feels guilty because he actually uses that word with, with phlegm when he gets back and says something about his conscience. On, uh, it's towards the end. Um, that the reason he came back early was for his conscience. It's written, when I asked Doc today, because she had, she read it late today, but I asked her earlier, I said, what was your response? Because I, I just wondered what she said. And she said, he's a scoundrel, but I like him. <laughs> I feel the same way. I mean, he, 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 it's almost as if watching Mink gives him a heart. It changes him. And that's not a small thing, because the, one of the questions we're going to be faced in the reading of this is, what's our response to me going to be. Two things happen here that to me are really important. One is we have moved out of a town of Jefferson. We're out of this town of respectability. The two locales of the world we're in now are the prison and a whorehouse. We have stepped out of that world and it seems to me if I'm reading right what we're seeing is that the people in them are very human. You know we look at the respectable people and think I mean if we look through the eyes of respectability like the people in Jefferson, it's easy to condemn everybody outside. If we look at it through Faulkner's eyes, we're seeing a whole town of Jeffersonians who are complicit with each other in a sin. When we step outside of it, we see people who are in sin, but not hiding it. They're all poor sons of bitches. So Faulkner's taken us out of that respectable world and showed us there's something very human about these people, and I'm not sure that the people in Jefferson would see it. Montgomery feels, I mean, the way Marcy, that he, it's, if you read that passage at the end when he's watching Mink go down, yeah. it's almost like he's sorry to see it. And he says, I was proud to watch him. 
he'll go on and say, you know, there, he talks about the Snopes as a lost people and he's one of them. But he's aware of it. I don't see the other Snopes showing that kind of awareness. So something happened with Montgomery. I think in some ways largely because of what happened with Mink. But in any case, we enter into this mind and it's interesting to see that um, happen. He, when you say he knew, you mean who? Like, like Montgomery, because it wasn't, it wasn't Flynn's idea. He, Flynn just said, just get him to fix I think it was. Oh, you think it was his idea to put him in a dress? Yeah. It was yeah. Flynn's idea? Because I, I never, I mean, because in the reading it says, Flynn told me. But you never know what Flynn you know, actually told him. So, yeah. And then he goes in and convinces him that, it's all Flynn's idea, and that you need to wear this dress and all that. And I didn't know if Montgomery came up with it. I think it's Flynn. You think he uh, Flynn? He provided the dress himself, I think. Yeah, I Did think. Flynn, Flynn, Flynn had the dress and the hat. Because um, that's a, what pushed me. That's what pushed me over the top. Yeah. Yeah. He thought, guy should have put me in the dress. <laughs> we don't have time, so let me let me quick. Um. We don't have time to go into this, but on, on page 100, remember when we were at the end of the town, when the town emptied, you know, the kids were out of school and there was that, um, that elegiac mood, the sense that something was about to happen and there was a melancholy to Gavin's reflections and it's almost as if something in the air prepared itself for Eula's death, that there's almost a, a correlation between what was going on in nature and what was going to happen in the human community. As soon as this happens to Mink, as soon as he gets caught again, in another 20 years, um, on page 99, um, we've got this quote. They told me, he said, I was warned. He stood, not moving, relaxed, small and frail, his face down bent a little, musing, peaceful, almost like faint smiling. He had not to have fooled me to get caught in that dress and sunbonnet. He said, I wouldn't have done that to him. But look at the, the musing peaceful. Something happens to him at this point. If you've read it, you know he begins to wait and listen. Um, and it's very clear on page 100 how this has a corresponding response in nature. The top of 100, they were picking the cotton now already. Every cotton county in Mississippi would be grooming their best, fattest champion. Go down, no champion at all would ever be here because only failures wound up here. The failures at killing and stealing and lying. He's remembering all of this. Um, go down, it was a fine crop, one of the best he remembered, as though everything had been exactly right. Season, wind and sun and rain. And then he says, all right, for once, let's confederate instead of fighting. He's, a change is taking place in him, um, and he begins to watch and listen. In the middle of 101, um, he describes all that the land can do to wear him out. He's been an itinerant farmer. It beats him down year after year after year. It's taking his life away. The land beats him down. And then he says, and not just me, but all my tenant and copper kind that has immolated youth and hope on 30 or 40 or 50 acres of dirt, it would nobody but our kind work because 
You're all our kind ham, but we can burn you. Every late February or March, we can set fire to the surface of you until all of you in sight is scorched and black. You can wear out our bodies and dull our dreams and wreck our stomachs with the sow belly and cornmeal and molasses, which is all you afford us to eat. But every spring, we can set you afire again, and you knew that too. It's as if a balance is being struck with this change that goes through him. Page 103, he says he used to preoccupy himself with thoughts about getting out, and if he'd only get out for a minute, he'd come back and do his time. That's in the middle of 103. But then he says at the bottom of that paragraph, um, what was his name, Montgomery Ward, to trick him into trying to escape in a woman's dress and sunbonnet, and they had given him 20 years more exactly, like that young fool lawyer had warned him they would at the very beginning, how even while he was fighting with the fire, five guards, he was still saying the same thing, just let me go long enough to reach Jefferson and have 10 minutes and I will come back myself and you can hang me. He didn't think things like that anymore now because he had learned to wait. And waiting, he found out that he was listening, hearing too, that he was keeping up with what went on by just listening and hearing. I think this is one of the moments that we hear about in mystics where you just, you say enough, somehow you, you trust in God in a more complete way. Father used the word in, the, in his homily this morning about the, a spirit of docility, of standing completely open you know, to God. Minka's docile. He's not fighting anymore. He's, he's waiting, and because he's waiting, he's listening. So he's far more receptive, far more in tune with what happens. Um, it's at this point that the 11 men that he's bunked with plan to escape, and he has to do everything you can. I mean, you know if you read it, he can to avoid it because he doesn't want to. He knows that right now he's got to wait. Um, they try the escape. He foils it, and the, the um, warden says he could let him free because of what he did. But Stillwell, one of the men, escapes and starts sending cards back threatening to kill Mink. So the warden doesn't want to let him out because he wants to spare his life. And um, this is where a strange thing happens. The ward, this is on page 110. The warden is now looking at him protectively. And um, Mink is now living with the idea he could, have, he could be released. And the warden says, so we'll kill you. There's this funny line where he says, um, then why not? Because um, the guard was going to kill Stu on the day he escaped anyway on page 108. If Captain Jobo, the guard who shot, had just killed Stu, well, too, I could go home tomorrow. So why don't you send him to kill him? <laughs> he has this very strict sense of justice. If you, if you could have killed him then, just send him out to kill him. You know? And the word says he can't do that. Um, the warden says in the middle of 110, just give him time, he, something will happen to Stillwell. Middle of page, time, Mink said, suppose a man ain't got time yet, just to depend on time. Go down, Christmas comes another a year, and then Mink says, maybe he will kill him there. What the warden said, what did you say? He didn't answer, he just stood there peaceful, musing, serene. This is not Mink, peaceful, serene, musing, listening. Before I had that air cow trouble with Jack Houston when I was still a boy, I used to go to church every Sunday and Wednesday prayer meeting too with the lady that raised me until I, who were they? Now remember, 
up until this time, he's been talking about this he in terms of they, them, almost, or it's this impersonal fate kind of power, but not a person. Now he begins to see him as a person, and he says, top of 111, Yes, Snopes, until I got big enough to burn out on God like you do when you think you are already grown up and don't need nothing from nobody. Then when you told me how by keeping nine of them ten fellows from breaking out, I didn't just add five more years to my name. I fixed it so you wasn't going to let me out. I'd taken it back because there's nothing he can do. He could have been released by the warden, and he wasn't. So fighting's not going to do any good. He says, I take it back. Took what back, the warden said. Back from who? I've taken it back from God. You mean you joined the church since the night, and then the warden assumes that he's like prisoners who tend to get caught up in these violent religious kinds of things? That's not what's happening at the bottom of um, 111. Yes, he said, most impatiently, you don't need to write God a letter. He has done already seen inside you long before he would even need to bother to read it, because a man will learn a little sense in time, even outside but he learns it quick in here that when a judgment powerful enough to help you will help you if all you got to do is just take back and accept it, you're a fool not to. He has turned himself completely over to God, is trusting to him. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen with somebody else because he knows at this point there's nothing he could. Every time he tries to do something, it gets screwed up. And every time an opening is given to him, it's taken away. He keeps getting these letters until... Um, at the bottom of 112 and then 13, they get the letter that um, Stilwell was killed, crushed inside of a church that fell down. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to st- look at the tree that he, when he gets out, we don't have time, but you know that when Mink gets out, he steps out into this paved road and the entire world has changed. He's been in jail almost 40 years. It was dirt fields. Now it's paved highways, cities, blazing, loud. He's 63 years old. He's having trouble walking. He doesn't know how to ask for help. He's never asked for his help. He needs a ride. He's lost in a world. I mean, completely disoriented. And then he has this recollection of a tree. I want to start with that next week. But before we go, what's happening here to Mink and this they or he or Olmoser? What's happening here Oh, and the other thing, when they get the news that Stilwell is killed, the warden says, you're free, except you need a petition. And Mink realizes he can't get the petition because there's nobody alive that he knew. So once again, nothing goes right in the world. He says, I might as well stay again and wait. He thinks he's going to wait for the next five years. Six months later, he gets a petition from who? Linda Snopes. By the way, here's the question for the next section. Every chapter you read in the Linda section keeps dealing with the question, why is she back? Why is she back? Over and over, Chick will ask that. They'll describe a, a Christmas setting with Snope at one end and Linda at the other. And they say, why is she there? What's she go? I'll, I'll just leave it at, why is all this stuff being made about Linda? And it all seems so indirect and veiled. Is is she going to play? Is she going to play a role here that we don't know? But that's next week. What's going on between Mink and this, this God? What's happening? Well, it sounds like he's trying to define God. 
to figure out exactly what that entity is. He's got different names for it. And how do you pronounce that weird name? Moster. Moster? <laughs> well, I guess it's Moster. What exactly Monster. is that? I mean, it's like a play on... Was it supposed to be Monster? I think it's a play on... Master. Master, or both. I think it's probably both. Okay, so there's not really... We don't really know what that is? All we know is it's very impersonal and not very caring. And it's got something to do with an upper being, a god, something. And it holds him, until the end here, it holds him to a strict legalistic code of justice. But the question is, what's happening here? It looks like he is he's coming around as to actually who God is. And it's not some weird he, them, they, moster. And not only God. that, it, when, when Mink stops fighting, when he stops, remember it said, I stopped fighting, let's confederate with the land. He changes his relationship. He starts listening. He starts trusting more. He has more hope. He begins to have a faith. And when he does, things start opening in an amazing way. So something's happening in Mink that's changing him in radical ways from the Mink, the mink that we saw in the Hamlet and the Mink that we saw in the beginning of... Uh, Still has that revenge on his heart. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, don't think, I, I missed the whole thing. It's God thing. I just thought he's figuring out how to bide his time so he can get out and do what he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, we he's have, getting smart about trying to survive. Is that smart? I mean, I, or or is something happening to his heart? But the the interesting thing, I mean, you you hit it. He 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 says, you can't undo it. Yeah. There's a wrong still in place, and his aim is getting out. To get phlegm, yeah, so there, that's that what wrong. we got. One, he's got one, one, one goal. We do that. We start the Linda section next week. So, justice. Dear God, please help me kill this poor man. I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, that's kind of what he's asking. Yes.